0: Well, it is Christmas week. We're finishing up our series. What child is this this morning? And uh, I, I was thinking about what I mentioned earlier that sometimes around this time of year, it feels like things get really hectic. And even sometimes it can feel overwhelming or just a little bit too much. The um, The parties, the food, the gifts, the movies you have to watch, all the traditions that are out there, the things that you've always done in the past that you're trying to get into right now. And for some of us, it feels like you try to cram it in that week right after school gets out and and Christmas is on the way. And sometimes in the midst of that, not only does it get hectic, but you've been doing Christmas stuff for a little bit and you start to get a little um, worn out of certain elements of Christmas. I was thinking about this week when I was having conversations. We did have a conversation on Wednesday at Bible study a couple of weeks ago about this. And I um, was just driving around when one of those songs that plays every year at Christmas, I, I just realized I was I was done with it this year. You might have any of those songs like you hear comes on the radio and you're just like, I'm just I'm I, like, I, I'm glad they're celebrating Christmas. I'm done with that song. And it made me think of and you're like, that's not how I expected this sermon to start. All right, well, that's where we are. And so sometimes you just kind of get done with it. And so here's what I thought. We're going to take a little poll. We did this right before Thanksgiving with your favorite side dishes. But today, don't put the list up, Josh, because I need to put a disclaimer up, okay? All right. And I know I'm, I, he's good up there, and he puts it up when I need it. But I, I need a disclaimer. But we're going to t- ask today, I'm going to poll this group. I have the top five least favorite Christmas songs. And you're going to vote for your least favorite. All right? Everybody understand that? Now, let me just, here's my disclaimer. If your absolute favorite Christmas song is on this list, it's not my list. I got it from the Internet somewhere. This is not my least favorite Christmas songs. These are, so, This it, I, I went to the single source of authority in our world, websites, Internet, and I found this. That's a joke, by the way. So we found this, and these are the five songs that were listed as the Least favorite Christmas. Alright, you throw it up there. Alright, here we go. Wonderful Christmas time, that Paul McCartney little bop. Santa Baby, which is cringe inducing. Christmas time is here, Charlie Brown. May, I'm sorry, it's not my list, sorry. Little drummer boy, because Mary just got Jesus to sleep, and a guy shows up and starts playing the drums. Not what you really want there. And then the Christmas shoes. All right, so here we go. Is everybody, everybody good on which one you got? You got yours locked in? So can I vote for all five? No, one vote. You get one vote. This is the First Baptist Church's least favorite Christmas song. We will put this out there and tag the, uh, the singers so that they know we don't like their song. I'm sure Paul McCartney would care if he won. All right. Wonderful Christmas time. How many of you, that's your least favorite? Oh, we got one. We got one. All right. Good to see you, Denise. Appreciate it. All right. What about Santa Baby? Oh, we got several. Well, look at that. Well, I'm, I'm not going to count. I wouldn't, I didn't want it to count. I'm not going to, but that's a lot. All right. Okay. Christmas time is here. Oh. Oh, we got one. We got, <laughs> Janet Lloyd was so timid. Like, I don't want everybody to know. This. <laughs> It's a little, it's a little draggy. All right. Yeah. Little drummer boy. We got any little drummer boys? Well, we got some. We got, oh, I see. I see. We got a couple. All right. If you think about the next song, you may break into tears. So we're just going to move through it. All right. Christmas shoes. How many of you got Christmas shoes? All right. I'm going to tell you, I think Santa Baby is the least favorite. I was In a shocking upset, because I was sure Christmas shoes were coming. All right. So. All right, so that has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about today, but it's fun, all right? We've been in the midst of this series called What Child Is This? And it is important that in the midst of all of the parties and the gifts and the food and the movies and the presents and the joining of together and family and friends and all of that, that we do stop and remember that this is about a child in a manger. Over the last few weeks, we've talked about what that child represents or who that child is, that he is fully God, that he is the light of the world. And then last week, that he is our neighborhood savior. And Today, I want to do something a little bit different. We're going to start in John chapter one, but we're going to move to an Old Testament passage and a New Testament, really just two verses, one Old Testament verse, one New Testament verse. And we're going to find out that what is important for us to understand as we stop and we think about Christmas this week is that the child in the manger is the manifestation of God's love for us. It is the reality of God's love. And what I want to do today is to paint a picture of how deep, how strong, how vibrant that love is for us. So if you've got your Bibles, turn first to John chapter 1. Open it in your app or open up the Bible. If you need a Bible, there's one in front of you. You can use it. John chapter 1. We're going to read this whole prologue. We've talked about parts of it. We're going to read the whole prologue, the whole first 18 verses of this passage. And then we're going to talk about the two verses that I want to center on today here and then move to the Old Testament and the New Testament. Starting in John 1, it says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning and things, all things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and yet the darkness could not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. You see, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. even though the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. This word, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John had testified concerning him, exclaimed, this was the one of whom I said, the one coming after he ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. It's a beautiful piece of poetry and literature that describes the reality of the coming of Jesus Christ. And in the midst of it all, we see two verses that speak directly to what I want to kind of focus on today. And the first is this. It's verse 12 that says, but to all who did receive him, to everyone, all, all means to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name, saying that God had figured out a way. God had planned a way. God had purposed away those of us that were separated from him that were alien to him that were orphans that were without a father because of our sin a heavenly father he made a way for us to be called children of God if we would believe in his name and so he is making us part of his family and the second thing we see part of what we understand from that and we talked about this a little bit in the last couple of weeks verse 18 no one has ever seen God but we have seen the son that's not there that's me interjecting but the one and only son who is himself god if anybody ever says the bible doesn't say jesus is god they haven't read that verse and is at the father's side jesus he the son the word has revealed god to us and here's what he revealed he revealed lots about the power we talked about this about the grace and the mercy but he reveals the heart of the Father let me just say at the very beginning of this I am indebted this week a great deal to the best book that I've read this year it's a book called Gentle and lowly by Dane Ortland and as I was reading it's one of those books that in the midst of life kind of got, I read about two-thirds of it and then It got sat down, got put somewhere. I didn't pick it up for a long time. And in the providence of God, last week I picked it up. And there were two chapters in the midst of it talking about the two verses that we're going to focus Maybe you don't have those kind of things happen. They don't happen as often as I would like to where it just seems like God says, Okay, I'm going to take a circumstance, I'm going to put that book in a corner somewhere, and I'm going to bring it out at the exact moment when you are living in a time thinking about the incarnation, thinking about Jesus coming, and all of this is going to kind of fit together. And I'm just going to be real honest with you. There are some weeks that I come up here, and I've got my notes planned out, and I've got everything done, and I know exactly how those beats are going to go, and what it's going to feel like and look like, and I have a pretty good grasp on all that, understanding that God always uses it in different ways than I think. This week I'm a little concerned because this resonated so deeply with me that sometimes the things that resonate the most deeply with you are the hardest to explain. And so I'm a little concerned this week because we're going to kind of do, this isn't going to be a sermon with points. In fact, I don't think there's a point in the sermon. Except unveiling the heart of God for you. So if you've got your Bibles, I want us to turn to Jeremiah 31. I don't know how many of you have read Jeremiah lately. It's not like the go-to devotional book. It is not the most inspiring book, especially for the first 29 chapters. Because for the first 29 chapters, God just tells them how terrible they are. When you get to Jeremiah chapter 30, things starts to change a little bit. And many would say that the crux of the entire book of Jeremiah, which by word count is the longest book in the Bible. When you get to the crux of Jeremiah, the pinnacle of Jeremiah, the focal point of Jeremiah it comes in Jeremiah thirty-one twenty, And we're going to focus there in a moment. I say that's the high point of Jeremiah's prophecy. It really comes in chapters 30 through 33, but the high point of that is chapter 31, verse 20. And the, the people that study the prophets, the scholars out there, and I, I read this uh, when I was in seminary. I remember reading this. I remember reading this several years ago and then read it this week. They call this the book of consolation. Now, that's a word that always was weird to me. Because when I would hear, there's a, there's a hymn with that, right? A Christmas carol. Israel's strength and consolation. Y'all, y'all with me? Come thou long expected. Y'all want me to sing it for you? Uh, come, no. No is the answer to that question. Come thou long expected, Jesus. And it says, Israel's strength and consolation. When I was a kid and I heard that, I thought, well, that's not good. Because I grew up as a game show fanatic. I liked all of them. Wheel of Fortune. Sale of the Century. Anybody remember that one back in the day? There was one where they read license plates that I remember and love. Like I was, you are know, like we don't know what you're talking about, all right? Well, I would stay at my grandmother's in the summer. She would have game shows on all day. Until her stories came on, the, gra- the game shows were on, all right? And so I love that. But here's what always happened. If you didn't win, what did you get? A consolation prize, Right? Like, if you didn't win in a tournament, you went to the consolation bracket. So I thought, well, Israel's strength and consolation, like, the, the, they didn't win, but they got this as kind of a secondary prize. That's obviously not what it means, right? Consolation means here the comforting or the setting right of what has happened. See, for 29 chapters, God has talked about how sinful they are. And in these chapters, chapters 30 through 33, he reveals his response to their sinfulness. Now, just in case you think, well, how sinful were they? Let Let me just give you four verses, five verses, Give you five verses from the first part of Jeremiah that shows what God thought of their sinfulness. Jeremiah 1.16, I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil. Jeremiah 2.13, these people, my people, have forsaken me. Jeremiah 3.2, you have defiled the land with your prostitution and wickedness. Jeremiah 5.23, the people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. And this one's just crazy to me. Jeremiah 6.7, as a well keeps its waters fresh, so Israel keeps fresh her evil. They are evil. And he tells them that. For 29 chapters, and Jeremiah chapter 30 starts to tell them how he's going to respond to it. And we get to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 20. This is what he says: "Isn't Ephraim? By the way, Ephraim is just another word for Israel." It's a word for the nation of Israel. It's almost like an endearing name. It seems that when God uses it, it's like like not a pet name, but you know, like a, a nickname that you would have for a child. Isn't Ephraim a precious son to me, a delightful child? Whenever I speak against him, I certainly still think about him. Therefore, my inner being yearns for him. I will truly have compassion on him. This is the Lord's declaration. Now upon first reading you think, well that's nice, but that doesn't sound very very deep. But I want you to listen to what these words actually mean, all right? In the midst of this, they for twenty nine chapters he's talked about how evil they are, how they're like a well that continues to feed up water, they continue to feed up evil. And then he gets to chapter thirty one and he says, But let me tell you about my Ephraim, my boy. The phrase he used here is like you would say, for your own child. He says, even in their evil, I don't forget them. And then he says this. And this is just an astounding statement to me. He says, my inner being yearns for him. If you have a different translation of that, it may translate it differently. If you have a more modern translation not the CSB like we use, it may use the word heart. It's not the normal word for heart. The normal word for heart is lev. That is not the word here used here, and that's the word that's used throughout most of the Old Testament. The word here is for something that's deeper. In fact, it's the Hebrew word meah, and it is used to describe the innermost parts of someone. And physically, just in general, it's used to describe the intestines. So for instance, in 2 Samuel chapter 20, when Joab stabs Amasa in the stomach, it says it spills out his meah, his guts on the ground. And so when it's talking about God here, obviously God doesn't have physical body, he doesn't have guts, but what it's symbolizing for us is this, that in the deepest part of who he is, in the inner sanctum of God, in the very being of who he is, not just at the heart level, but deep down, we still talk about that, that feeling in our gut or, or, or sometimes when you hear bad news, it was like, it just feels like, you know what I'm talking about, like when you hear something really desperate or really bad or really good, it impacts you differently than just the fluttering heart. It goes deep into who you are. And it says this about God in his deepest parts, in the inner bowel. In fact, if you have the King James version of the Bible, it will say in his bowels. In the deepest sanctum of all of his emotion and everything he is, it says his deepest emotion there is that he yearns for him. He is restless. He is agitated. He is turbulent in his desire for these people. I was reading one commentary this week that said that it's as if it describes God as a parent who is constantly in love with, concerned for, and walking through the difficulty of life with his child. Now, if you're a parent in this room, you know this emotion. When we get bad news, sometimes we call it gut-wrenching, right? At the deepest part of who we are. When we get good news, sometimes there's just not any way to explain what we're feeling. It is deeper than just sentimentality. It's deeper than just some sort of emotion. It is at the gut level of who we are. And it says at God's gut level, at his deepest part, he is restless. He is agitated because of his desire and his love for us. Twenty nine chapters Of the evil and the sin and the problems with Israel. And in one verse he says, but I love them. And in my deepest part, I yearn for them. And he tells them what he's going to do. You can yearn for them and then punish them. But that's not what he says. He says, I will truly have compassion on him. What will he do? He will have mercy. In fact, this construction, the original language, actually says, Having mercy, I will have mercy. His yearning heart, his yearning bowels, his yearning inner sanctum of emotion, and all that he is, is desiring to give us mercy. Dane Ortland, who wrote gentle and lowly, says this, "...the yearning heart of God delivers and re-delivers sinners who find themselves drowning in the sewage of their lives in need of a rescue that they cannot even begin on their own, let alone complete." He wants to give mercy again and again and again as much as we need it. Here's the central question. I said there wasn't a point today's sermon. Here's a central question I want you to ask, and it's simply this. What do you think God thinks of you? Like, if you imagine, if God was to describe me, how would God describe me? And my guess is whatever your answer would be, it would be short of the love and the mercy he desires to give you. All right, let's go to the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 2. So just flip over to the New Testament or on your app, or if you don't want to do that, just listen to me. Ephesians chapter 2. We've just finished on Wednesday night walking through the book of Ephesians. It's a phenomenal book. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 6. If you want to get the gist of all that Ephesians is, it is right there in Ephesians 2, 1 through 6. It's a synopsis of the whole book, and it's a synopsis of the gospel. And again, we're going to focus really on one verse, really two verses in the middle, but one verse in particular. Because what happens in Ephesians chapter two verses one through three is he gives us the problem that we have in our lives and our need for salvation. In verses five through six, he gives a solution to those problems. So in chapters one through in chapter two, verses one through six, he tells us we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Not sick, not infected, not worried, we were dead. Not only were we dead in our sins, we were also Walking according to the ways of the world and we were being controlled by the spirit of the air, which is the enemy of God, letting our flesh do whatever we want. We were carrying out the inclinations of our flesh without any regard for God. The last part of this verses five and six tell us that God made us alive with Christ, though we were dead. He raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenlies with Jesus. So he says, here was our problem. We were dead. We didn't have any hope. We couldn't do anything on our own. We couldn't, as Dane Nortland says, even begin to think about how to get ourselves out of this mess. And here's the solution. God saved us. He made us alive in Christ, saved by grace, and we have been seated in the heavenlies with him. So verses 1 through 3, the problem. Verses 5 and 6, the solution. But verse 4 is where I want to center in because this is the reason. Why? Why did God save us? Verse 4 tells us, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us. But God, two of the greatest words in the history of humanity and eternity. But God. Rich in mercy. Do you know that nowhere else in Scripture does it say that God is rich in anything? The only place in Scripture it describes God as rich is in his richness in mercy. We can't think tepid thoughts or low thoughts about the mercy and the grace of God or the goodness of God. His mercy is overflowing. It is compared to a flood. It is compared to a washing away. It is compared to an overwhelming tide. And it tells us in this passage that the reason God saved us, the reason for John 1.14 that Christ came is because of his richness and mercy and his great love for us. Now, a couple of things about this little verse here that we need to understand. Rich in mercy tells us that he is being rich in mercy. It is rich in mercy. It's not who he's becoming. It's not something that he's trying for. He is at the essence of his being. He is rich in mercy and is an invincible love that he has because of his great and that word great. There means not only big, but also like unconquerable love. Because of his great love, he saved us. One of the things that we have to remember when we read that verse is that Jesus did not come to mend wounded people or to wake sleepy people or to advise confused people or to inspire bored people or to spur on lazy people or to educate ignorant people. Jesus came to raise dead people. And without Him we have no hope, but praise be to God because of His richness in mercy and His great love for us. He has saved us. And that richness of mercy and that great love is seen in the form of a man. The Word became flesh and made its dwelling among us. Titus 2.11, Paul describes the incarnation this way, when grace appeared. Richard Saab said that what we have in the incarnation is Jesus' is pure grace clothed with our flesh. And what we see in Christmas is the overflowing of not a stingy but a lavish, not a tight-fisted but an open-handed love of God. And what that means for you and me is there is absolutely nothing we can do that can weaken the love that God has for us. That in the things in our lives that we most cringe about make him want to hug us the most. His mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours often is. It is unrestained, flood-like, and sweeping. I think about the prodigal son, which really ought to be called the prodigal father, because in that Great parable, the son comes back and the father doesn't sit there and say, well, I would I would do some things, but when I think about all you've done to me, I can't give you everything. He says, my son was dead and he is alive. Let's throw the biggest party we can imagine. Go get the fattened calf. Go get the best stuff to put out. We are going to celebrate in a way that seems reckless and unwise. Here's what I know about our world this Christmas. That yearning love that Jeremiah talked about, our world is starving for that. A love that remembers instead of forsakes. A love that isn't tied to our loveliness, isn't tied to how good we are. A love that gets down underneath our messiness. A love that is bigger than the enveloping darkness we might be walking through even today. A love of which even the best human romance is the faintest of whispers of. And while for some that sounds abstract, the yearning heart of God that Jeremiah speaks of, subjective, even mushy, or, 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 or out there somewhere. What Christmas reminds us of in John one fourteen is the abstract became real and concrete. What if the heart of God wasn't just something coming down on us from heaven, but something that showed up among us on earth? What if we saw God's heart not in the prophets telling us words, but in a prophet telling us that he was God's word, the embodiment of it. If Jeremiah thirty-one twenty, my heart yearns for him. If those words were to get dressed in flesh, what might those words look like? And we don't have to wonder about that because it looks like a Middle Eastern carpenter restoring men and women's dignity and humanity and health and consciousness through healings and exorcisms and teachings and hugging and forgiving. And now we begin to see the resolution of the tension in Jeremiah thirty-one twenty between the sins of the people and the love of God. It rumbles through the entire Old Testament, building in momentum, growing in sharpness, the tension between divine justice and divine mercy. God says in that Jeremiah passage, I speak against him, but I remember him still justice and mercy. And what we know is that this child in the manger would be the one that would declare the love of God, not only in coming and living among us, but at the height of human history, justice was fully satisfied and mercy was fully poured out at the exact same time when the father sent his eternally dear son and darling child to a Roman cross where God truly did speak against him, where Jesus Christ poured out his blood, the innocent for the guilty, so that God could say of us, I Remember him still. And our lives have been forever changed. What child is this? It is the manifestation of the love of God for us. And I don't know where you are today. I don't know. I don't know where you stand on that question of what do you think God thinks of you. Sometimes when we hear that question, the first thing we think about are all the sins in our lives and all the ways that we have failed him. And those are there and God speaks against those. But in the midst of speaking against those, he also speaks mercy and love because his heart yearns for a relationship with you because of his great love for you. And if you ever doubt that God loves you. Then you only have to look To the manger in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. To a child born to die. As believers in this room, most of us in this room are believers. One of the things that I think about when reading this is the number of people in this world who have never heard about the love that God has for them. That's why every year we do extravagant giving and we give to places that are spreading the gospel in ways that we can't because of our location and because of limitations on the number of people that we are here. We give to a place like the International Mission Board that is literally sending thousands of missionaries around the world to tell people who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ that God, because of his being rich in mercy and his great love for them, sent Jesus to save them. To Denver, Colorado, one of the least evangelized, least Christian cities in North America. Where Chris Phillips and Journey Point Church is making an impact and a difference there. To the Cincinnati Baptist Children's Home that is taking the least of these, according to our world standard, that are loved deeply by God. And to Lynch, Kentucky, one of the poorest counties in America. Where Terry and Angie are doing an amazing ministry. In the midst of all of that. We want to go. We want to support those that do. That's why we do extravagant giving. That's why we do it at Christmas. We're going to have a time of response here in a moment. There are a couple of ways that you can respond today. If you've got something you need to respond to. When it comes to the message or to Jesus, and I'll be standing down front. I'd love to have a conversation with you. Right. Maybe you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You've never accepted that love. He gives it freely. We just have to accept it. Maybe you've never done that. and Today is the first time that you want to do that. be standing here. I'd love to talk to you. Maybe you just want to come and pray at the altar. Maybe you just want to come and speak to me and ask for prayer. I'll be down here. I'd love to have you respond in that way. But we're also here today for Extravagant Giving Day. I'm going to ask you to to give. Because of the love that God has for you and the love that needs to be extended to other people, I'm going to ask you to give whatever you can. We're going to have a moment just during this time, during the invitation. I'm just going to ask you to come and to lay your offering here at the side on the altars. Just find a place to put it there. It's a symbolic dedication of us turning this over to the Lord and trusting that he is going to use it for the glory of his name, for the sake of his kingdom, for the extension of it. And so just a moment, when I finish praying, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. I'm going to ask you to come and bring your offering, your extravagant giving offering. And if you have any other reason to come, I'm going to ask you to come. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we talk so much about your love what it means for us. But Lord, I'm overwhelmed thinking about your love. And it's not just a, a word or a phrase. It is from the deepest part of who you are that you love me. And when I think about me, I feel like the Israelites in that passage of the 29 chapters beforehand. Of all the things that I have done against you and away from you and without you. And yet Scripture tells me again and again that in spite of that, and sometimes even because of that, your love for me has grown exponentially. Lord, I'm thankful that you yearn for the relationship with me and for everybody in this sanctuary today. And I pray, Lord, that we would accept that and live in that, especially this week of Christmas. As we give these offerings today, Lord, we pray that they would be used for your glory, for the spread of your kingdom. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to...